Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, January 15th, day 101 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our diplomatic correspondent, Laser Behrman, for an in-depth one-on-one conversation. Hi, Laser. Hello. Laser was inside the Gaza Strip yesterday, and we'll hear what he saw. We'll get his perspective on the past 100 days of war and hear about a Hamas network in Europe. All of this and more when we're back. Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. First, a few headlines. Israeli security forces arrested a number of students during a raid on a university campus overnight. Israeli soccer player Sagib Yechezkel was arrested in Turkey last night after a gesture he made during a game to the Israeli hostages to mark a somber 100 days in Chabas captivity. He will be brought before a judge this morning. Troops of the 98th Division and Israeli Air Force foiled an attempt by Hamas to ferry weaponry in a truck to operatives in the Khan Yunus area, the military reports. Now, Laser, you were in Gaza yesterday for the first time since you returned from your extended reserve duty. What did you see yesterday? I was in the Gaza Strip with the 646 Brigade. That's a reserve paratrooper brigade. Uh, mostly of people that were in the 890th uh, paratrooper battalion. Uh, that's one of the three paratrooper ones. Um, the uh, brigade commander, Elad Shushan, uh, invited me and another journalist to uh, join him and uh, his little team. And uh, we did a few things. One, we talked about his command of that uh, area and, and the operations within that, that sector. It's in the central Gaza Strip, north of the Niseirat camp, south of Gaza City. So um, that's part of the 99th uh, Division's attack in the central Gaza Strip that's been going on uh, for a few weeks now. These soldiers have been in since the first day, since the 7th of October. So that was their 100th day of uh, reserve duty of fighting. Interestingly, not a single one of them really knew that it was the 100th day. When I asked them about it, they're like, oh, when does that happen? It was today. You see how you know they're focused really uh, on the fighting, on what they have to do, really not paying attention to what's going on ar- around the country in terms of political things that we talk about and that we kind of get bogged down in. Um, they're really just focused on um, you know continuing the mission. Um, there are still a lot of 
uh, tunnels that they're finding that seems to be the main challenge. Um, I was able to see a tunnel that they had actually just found. Um, they find the shafts that come out all the time, but the, the big challenge is um, con constructing a map of the underground city, of how these all connect, where the um, the main avenues are, because you can destroy these these shafts all the time, but they can di they're still digging new ones once they get blocked. Um, but it's really a question of mapping out where the underground city is. Stopping Hamas and, and, and taking territory above the ground is, is relatively easy for the IDF. And we've, we've seen the IDF do that very quickly when they um, open up an offensive on, on, on a major city, which you know Hamas sees as, as one of its strategic assets. Uh, troops are there you know, within hours, but it, it's the underground that continues to, to be a threat. And and that's um, why IDF uh, soldiers are, are continuing to get to get uh, injured and killed. Laser, you said that Hamas is still digging tunnels. That's like digging. They're not digging the main tunnels, but they're still able to um, open up new shafts um, that lead into the the network. So just because Israel destroys and and they destroy, I would imagine these shafts multiple times a day across the Gaza Strip doesn't mean that this network doesn't still work. Uh, they're able to, to, you know, open maybe some of them pre-prepared, so some take a little bit of digging, but new ones are popping up all the time, even in ground that's been, um, that, that IDF troops have been over. So that's a real challenge. The big uh, mission here in terms of the tunnels is to understand how they're laid out and to destroy the the heart of these tunnels. Now, a lot of them, it's not like the whole Gaza Strip is connected. These are these are kind of local tunnel networks, but they're they're very, um, they're really at the heart of, of Hamas's uh, efforts to wear down IDF troops, to outlast them, um, and and of course in different parts of the Gaza Strip, that's where hostages are and where senior leaders are, which are also two uh, major parts of this fight as well. Okay, you said you were with a parachute unit, correct? And do you feel like they were in any way prepared to carry out the operations that they're doing right now? Yeah, I mean, this is not that different than uh, what Israel Israelis have been training for, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah in the north. Um, Hezbollah, you know, is, is, a, is a much more capable organization. It's much bigger, better trained, much more professional, and the terrain is very different. So the terrain there is a little bit different. But this type of, of fighting in terms of urban environments um, and an enemy that we've gotten to know very well, a lot of these uh, reserve soldiers and definitely the officers have, you know, have been in the previous operations. Twenty fourteen is a big one that they were in as well. So yeah, I think I think they feel like they're they're well prepared. Their equipment, I asked them about. Say they got everything they need when they are ready to go in, and of course they had those few weeks of training that a lot of these reserve forces had um, to really prepare themselves for this particular mission. You're talking about prior to the ground invasion, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, after October seventh, you know, they called up uh, almost all the the reserve forces, or, or a big percentage of them, and uh, many of them went to places like Saline to these training bases to to train up. Um, to build uh, kind of an organic sense because every time you do reserves, there's always new people and to prepare them for this particular mission. I think the feeling is that they were well well prepared. Um, five soldiers of this brigade have been lost, um, unfortunately, but that's not at all, you know, that doesn't point at any major uh, calamity here. It's the tunnels, basically. I think every one of the uh, incidents in which uh, soldiers were, were killed in that in that sector were, had to do with uh, the use of tunnels by Hamas. 
You were in the reserves for quite a while and now in this trip in. What is your sense of the morale of the soldiers? It's a good question. Uh, the morale, I think, is good. Uh, the soldiers understand what uh, the mission is and they want to finish it. They certainly don't want to be pulled out for any other reason than that the mission is completed. I think everyone understands what they're there for, what we're there for, um, that the future of the country, the security of the country, um, and most of these soldiers or many of them have kids too. And then the, the kids' safety and future uh, living in a democratic Jewish state is at stake here. And what the reserve forces are doing in the Gaza Strip and up north are uh, guaranteeing a safe and prosperous future um, against a very dangerous and wicked enemy. That being said, uh, I think we all expect the next year to have Miluin be called up again and again. And it's possible that with each time as the mission gets drawn out a bit and it gets harder to go back and forth to work and there's more pressure from bosses and you know the the many Miluim Nikim who are students that starts to catch up to them it could be that that morale starts to drop um and let's not forget that people's financial situation is going to get worse and worse i mean you get paid Miluim basically your normal salary and plus some bonuses but that doesn't always cover everything, and there's pressures from home, um, you know, from the family. So there's a lot of lot of things, that, and then that's not to mention any kind of difficult scenes that people experience or see in, in the course of a war. So over the course of the next year, um, I think the the reserve component will be more and more of a something that the the state and the the military has to pay attention to, and we can think back to the 1982 first Lebanon war where reservists were called up again and again, and during you know the, the act of fighting against Syria and the PLO, it wasn't a problem, but as you continue to call them back and there's questions about, okay, what are we doing here? What's the mission? That That is a danger. I'm not saying it'll happen, but if if leaders aren't very clear about what the mission is and, and, we can, and we're not continuing to advance toward it, I think some questions might be asked. You mentioned difficult scenes, and I wonder how much interaction the soldiers are having with civilians in Gaza. You're talking about the soldiers that I was with yesterday? Correct. There's not many civilians in that sector anymore, uh, that's for sure. The Salahadin Roads, that's the main artery that goes north-south in Gaza, is open every day. Civilians know that they can use it to move south. That is what uh, ever... That, you know, all the IDF wants to do is to get everyone to move south. It's in everyone's interest. It's in the civilian's interest, uh, and it's in the army's interest. So there is still some movement on that, and they still do occasionally run into civilians. I didn't see any civilians. Um, they, they were. I didn't talk to the civilians, but they were telling me about you know when they they find women and children. Um, this is what they tell them. It might be that they're just saying what Israel wants to hear, but. They say that you know Hamas is underground, you know, protected, and they've left us above ground to, you know, vulnerable, and and you know they they certainly don't have many good things to say about Hamas. Who knows how how true that is? There was one instance I saw videos of this where a th they encountered a three year old girl walking toward them in the middle of the night, um, and they asked her, uh, you know, where'd you come from? She said from the ground. So it seems like someone took her out of a tunnel, put her on ground, and kind of pushed three or three years old, pushed her toward IDF troops. Luckily, these are reservists. They have good, um, you know, they're, they're calm and, and, and they know how to, they're not uh, quick to the trigger at all, even though it was coming from a place where they were open to, to fire, um, where enemy positions were. They understood that this is, you know, someone who's way too short to be uh, any sort of danger. It's probably a child. Took her, gave her medical care. She wasn't even wearing shoes. Bandaged her feet against, uh, eventually gave her to the Red Crescent. 
which is the Palestinian Red Cross there. Um, so there are still some surprises and, and things like that, but in general, it's pretty empty of civilians, and I think that's a good thing for everybody. Okay, we'll go to a short break. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. This morning we reported that several Hamas officials who are living in Lebanon have fled to neighboring countries and other allies after the Hamas deputy leader Saleh al-Aruri was killed in an alleged Israeli strike. Now, Hamas also runs a network of operatives in Europe, and you wrote a story about what's happening there. Tell us a bit about it. So on Saturday night, right when Shabbat ended, the Prime Minister's office uh, released a statement in conjunction with the Shin Bet and the Mossad intelligence agencies detailing um, the Hamas network in Europe. So those are the countries of Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and Holland. You might remember back in December, there was a series of arrests in these countries of Hamas members. Um, and Denmark uh, announced, uh, I think it was yesterday, maybe it was uh, two days ago, that those arrests indeed had to do with a Hamas network. Um, The idea was that these are uh, activists and um, that have access to these countries, some of them live there, um, that are looking to target Israeli institutions, Jewish institutions in these countries. It's a serious threat. The EU has certainly talked about it and is taking it seriously. Um, and we put up on, on the Times of Israel, you know, some of the pictures that they sent us and the names of this network. Um, the, a lot of the details are still under wraps because of the legal proceedings in these countries. But, uh, you know, Hamas surprised us on October 7th. Let's not forget, it's not just a issue for Gaza and the communities around there and a little bit further, you know, away in Israel. It's also, uh, this is an international terrorist organization with, with branches and, and, and terrorists uh, around the world in Europe because of the ease with which um, a lot of terrorists can get in and out and, and, you know, in communities there and they can, you know, it's kind of easy. It has been easy for them to, uh, to fly below the radar. Um, I think that, that, you know, it gave them an opportunity to, to set up some of these cells, but the Europeans are taking this very seriously now and, and are certainly um, aware of the danger and seem to be acting against it in conjunction with Israel. 
Lisa, we've discussed the looming potential of a war in the north. And yesterday, of course, Barack Ayalon, 45, a member of uh, Kfar Yuval's security team, was killed alongside his mother, Miri Ayalon, who is 76, when a projectile from Lebanon slammed into a northern town. Do you see that these two fresh uh, victims would in any way change the balance in terms of whether we do consider fighting up in the north or not? This in and of itself is not going to be the thing that, uh, you know, that forces Israel into war. Israel still does not want to go to war right now. The feeling, I think, more and more is that it's inevitable. If there wasn't the operation in the Gaza Strip right now, the war in the Gaza Strip, then with all of these attacks that Hamas has been carrying out against IDF uh, bases, troops, and against civilians, this is an, you know, an, an anti-tank missile targeted at a house, um, we would certainly be at war. So I think it's a question of, of if and not when. It doesn't have to happen now. I think there's still a little bit of hope that somehow we can get some sort of temporary diplomatic solution that staves it off. Um, but I think we all have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that war will be coming at some point in the north. I think it's better for Israel if it's a couple of years down the road in the conditions of our choosing. When we've learned the lessons of October 7th and from the Gaza war, we've built back up the army. The Miluim have had a chance to breathe. We've built up uh, international support for such an operation, and we're able to carry it out and surprise the enemy. Right now, they're uh, mobilized, we're mobilized. It wouldn't be much of a surprise. So when it comes, I think it'll be important that it's when we want it and not in reaction uh, to a tactical but painful attack like this. Laser, thank you so much for joining me today with all these updates. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>